0: I'd like for each of you to think about a a time when you were concerned about someone in your life who seemed to be headed in a wrong direction, certainly worried about them, hopefully you prayed for them, and maybe you even sought to warn them of the likely consequences of their choices. And then having done that, you did all that you could do to encourage them to move in a better direction. Maybe it was a member of your family. Maybe it was a close friend. The first time I remember trying to do that sort of thing was almost exactly 50 years ago. My, my closest friend had taken up smoking, as a lot of people did in those days. Now, at that time, we didn't have the medical evidence that we have today with respect to the consequences of smoking But we all knew people that had that smoker's cough Or maybe had some trouble breathing So I worried about him, he was athletic, he was a soccer player He loved mountaineering And, and finally I went to him and I said David, when, when you're older I want you to be able to do the things that you do now Maybe you should consider stopping smoking I was scared to death to do that But I did it, and and thankfully, he soon quit. I don't know that it had anything to do with what I said at all, but I was grateful that he stopped. This concern for someone put into the very best words that we can muster is essentially what we've seen these last six weeks in the book of Hebrews. This book, found nearly at the very end of our Bibles, addresses people who were contemplating turning back on Christianity From following Jesus. Specifically, they were thinking about going back to Judaism as they had practiced it earlier in their lives. Now, from our point of view, they never really left Judaism because we don't believe that Christianity is a departure from Judaism. We believe that Jesus came and fulfilled the entire Old Testament and that he is the completion of all the promises of the Old Testament. So for us, we see Judaism and Christianity as one long continuum. However, from reading the books, we see, the book of Hebrews, we see that some people were contemplating turning their backs on Jesus and going backwards. The the technical word for this sort of thing is apostasy, which just simply means to fall away. They were in danger of falling away from the faith. And the person behind the book of Hebrews warns and encourages these people to continue in the same direction that they began when they first heard about Jesus and first began to follow Jesus. I think most of us in this room can probably identify with what that preacher, author would have felt and what was going on in his mind. We've had family members We've had friends who have fallen away from Christ for reasons that we've never quite understood or been able to figure out. They just simply decided that following Jesus wasn't something they wanted to do. They stopped. They fell away. They gave up. And they went back to living as they had lived before they knew Christ. In many cases, those people started well. But sadly, they didn't finish well. It's sort of like in a race. It reminds me of a song that I took as a warning for my own life and an encouragement for my own life roughly 20 years ago. A person gave me a CD uh, by a really strange singer who wrote really strange, strange songs. And of course, I fell in love with it because I like strange things. And, uh, and, And he wrote the song, Everybody Looks Good at the Starting Line. And the chorus, the refrain of that line goes, you can hit the ground running like you're shot from a gun, but going the distance is the hard part, son. Everybody looks good at the starting line. I realized how true that was, and I wanted to look good at the finish line. I wanted to finish the race well. Uh, as a kindness to me, as there was a surprise party for me when I retired from the Navigators, and Aaron Propp, who I knew from Navigator work, who uh, is a wonderful singer, sang this song and accompanied by Bill Western on the pedal steel guitar. It was glorious, it was awesome, and, and I loved it. But some people start well and they don't finish well. And the Christian life is like running a race. Many people start well, but some don't finish well. The imagery of a race is very familiar to anyone who's spent any time at all in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul compares Christianity to running a race. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In an Acts, he says, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus Christ has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And then in the letter to the Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Run the Christian race well. Now, following Jesus is much like running a race. And often we need this reminder that our race is not a sprint, it's a long marathon, longer than any kind of ultra marathon imaginable. Now, when we think of following Jesus as a race, we can easily begin to think about people that we have known who have quit running. Maybe they felt it was too hard, too demanding or they could no longer see the point. Maybe we tried to encourage them to stay involved with Christ. Or maybe we didn't even know how to begin to do that. And in many cases we're still praying for those people that they might come back to Jesus. There's an older prayer from the Anglican Canadian Anglican Prayer Book, the 1916 Addition, in case you're taking notes, um, that I pray often in my, in my own quiet time. And I'm just going to give you a, a little section of the prayer. O loving Father, we commend to thy gracious keeping all who are near and dear to us. Awaken all who are careless about eternal things. Bless those who are young and in health, that they may give the days of their strength unto thee, In our prayers we pray for those who have fallen away, and in our prayers we pray for those who are young, that they would run the race well. I I hope that you are all praying for the young people in our church, that they would run the race well. Now, some old-timers will remember Ted Batters. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know some of you remember Ted. Uh, I used to be in a Tuesday morning prayer meeting with Ted, which is great in the summer and horrible in the winter. Just hate it, because we met at 7 a.m. And Ted would often pray for family members who would quit the race. And, And he would often pray that the Holy Spirit would make them homesick for Jesus. I loved hearing him pray that, and I've taken those words and incorporated them often into my own prayers. I pray that almost every week for someone I know that the Spirit would make them homesick for Jesus. Now, in the book of Hebrews, the argument for not quitting the race, as we've seen over the last six weeks now, is very simple. The superiority of Christ. There's one reason to stick with the race, and that is the superiority of Christ. He is greater than anyone or anything in the universe, so why would you even think about dropping out of the race or turning back from following him? He's worth all that running the race might cost a person. Now, the verses that Doug read a few minutes ago, this argument for the greatness of Jesus Christ and its corresponding exhortations reaches its climax. This is the high point of the book of Hebrews, the climax and the conclusion of his argument. I mean, the book's not over. There's three more chapters where he kind of Wraps things up a little bit and winds things down But this is the climax of his argument For the superiority of Jesus Christ And The picture, the the preacher or the author Paints a picture of the perfect sanctuary And of the perfect priest in Jesus Christ And he does this using two contrasting pictures Uh, The first is a picture of the old priesthood Comparing it with the new priesthood of Christ Look at Hebrews 10. It's on page 925 in your pew Bible, if you would, beginning with verse 11. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sin. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time, then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For that by for by that one offering he forever made perfect those who are, he made forever perfect those who are being made holy. So first, there's the image of the priest. The priests of the Old Testament, the descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses, are portrayed as standing. Where their work is never done. People bring sacrifices. They're offered to God. Sins are forgiven. And then what happens? You know exactly what happens. Those people go out and sin again. They've got to do it all over again. The job of the priest is never done. Sacrifices are offered. Sins are forgiven. And then both the priest and the person who offers the sacrifice Sins. But Jesus, having offered himself as a sacrifice, sat down. His work was complete, as Hebrews says, And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. But now, how are things different with Jesus? Surely we do keep sinning, just like the old days. We sin more than we know, quite frankly, because we hide things even from ourselves that we do. So, so what's different? What's different is that sacrifice of Jesus covers all of our sin. Last week, Bobby was talking about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement in the Jewish faith. You remember that once a year, the high priest would go to the temple and go into the Holy of Holies, past the curtain, and he would offer the sacrifice for all the people. Now, actually, he didn't quite do that. The sacrifice was offered outside at the altar. What he did was he took some of the blood from that sacrifice. He took that blood into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, and he sprinkled the blood on the Ark of the Covenant upon the mercy seat. And by this he made atonement for the sins of the people. Now atonement, what what do we mean? The word means covering, literally The sacrifice of Jesus Christ Covers our sins for all times With the high priest The sacrifice of the animal With the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat Covered their sins for a year That's the contrasting picture that he creates here Jesus' sacrifice, which was an atoning sacrifice, did much more than the high priest could ever offer. In his death, he covered the sins of everyone. Now, that sacrifice is only effective for those who accept it by faith. But Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for the sins of every single living person. He took all of our sin upon himself. The collective sin of all humanity. And he sacrificed himself for that guilt. Now, there's some confusion around this verse for some people. Don't don't be confused. This does not mean that Jesus became a sinner as he hung on the cross. It means that by his death, the one who was fully human, born of the Virgin Mary, and fully divine, the second person of the Trinity forever and ever, he died in our place and his death served as a covering for all the sins of humanity. Effective only for those who believe in him and receive that. So we read in First Peter chapter 2. He never sinned, nor even deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body, on the cross, so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, we are healed. So Jesus is our perfect priest, and he's our perfect sacrifice. He's the priest who offered and sacrificed his own life for our sin. There's none greater. There's nothing more that we can need in our lives. Why would we turn away from the greatness of Christ to anything that is lesser? And yet our speaker is not quite finished. Let's resume reading at verse 15, which which the lectionary leaves out for today. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so, for he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Remember that he's constantly quoting from the Old Testament. This is from Jeremiah chapter 31. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. Again, Jeremiah 31, verse 34. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. So, and so, dear brothers and sisters, listen carefully. This is for us. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, through his flesh. Jesus opened a new and life giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. This brings us to the second contrasting picture. The first picture, which was between the standing priest of the Old Testament system and Christ who is seated. This contrasting picture is between the Holy of Holies that we saw pictures of last Sunday, either in the tent, uh, the tabernacle, or, or the temple, and the the real Holy of Holies, the archetypal Holy of Holies which is in heaven. Bobby talked about the Holy of Holies last Sunday, that holy place in both the tabernacle and temple, here we see a priest looking past the curtain into the room. The priest could only go into that room once a year, into that Holy of Holies, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And he went in there to offer us The blood of the sacrifice On behalf of the whole nation Now looking back We know two things about that Holy of Holies First That curtain That you see depicted in the the picture there as, as, As the priest looks into there That curtain When Christ died was torn Not by human hands From the very top To the bottom That we know The other thing we know, there's been no Holy of Holies since 70 AD when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. It hasn't been. There is no Holy of Holies for a priest to go into anymore. What the point of, of the author is, is simply that the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament represented the true holy place, the place where God dwells in heaven, The place where Jesus went and sat down, his work completed. And the speaker moves on to that in verse 20. By his death, through his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And that's where he brings us into the picture. We, through Christ, are able to enter into that most holy place where our priest and king is seated our priest, our king. You know what today is on the church calendar? Anybody? Ashton's saying, no, he doesn't know. No, you don't know either, Rose. It's the last Sunday of the year. Next Sunday begins the new church year. Does anybody know what the last Sunday of the church year always is? Come on. Oh, Kim, you should know. What? Christ the king. Craig, yes, see, Kim knows. It's Christ the King Sunday. Every year the church celebrates on this Sunday the the fact that Christ is king of the universe, of everything. He created it all. He reigns over it all. He's our king. And we have the privilege of going into his throne room. So he says in verse 17, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death through his flesh, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the Most High. I think I've repeated that verse three times in the sermon now. I want you to get the point. It is our privilege to go into the very presence of God. Now those two pictures conclude the argument for the superiority of Christ As the reason that we should keep running the race But again, he's not done The book of Hebrews challenges us to do something about this I'd like you to look at verse 21 And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts Fully trusting him For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good deeds. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. You can be very thankful that you don't have a Greek New Testament in front of you. Verses 19 to 25 are one sentence. A very long, complicated sentence. But you know the nice thing about long sentences? You can break them down. You can diagram them. You can pay attention to the grammatical parts and say, Hey, I think I'm figuring this out. Sentence begins with a long clause, which is a summation clause. He sums up in that clause, which is not an independent sentence, it's all one thought. He sums up in that clause the basis or the foundation of his argument, the basic facts. We can enter Christ's presence, the real Holy of Holies, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We don't need a priest. To go there on our behalf Jesus has opened the door For every one of us to go in And what's the reason Why we can do this Because of the effects Of Christ's sacrifice On us We are Clean Sin pollutes Pollutes the heart Pollutes the mind Pollutes the thoughts Pollutes the body Everything's been cleansed cleansed in Christ. Our guilty conscience has been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. We are clean, and our body has been washed as if with purest water. We are clean, not just in our hearts, but in our minds and in our bodies through Christ. That's why we can go into God's presence. If we weren't clean, we could never go in. We go into the presence of our great high priest and king. Now, the next thing he says here is that this king rules over the house of God. Now, in the Old Testament, when we read the Old Testament, we'd like to think of the temple as the house of God. And sometimes we'll talk about church buildings as the house of God. And that's really all quite wrong. The word here is oikos, he is, he is the king over the oikos. It's an interesting Greek word. We get the word economy from that word. It refers not to the building, but to the people in the building, the household. Now, if you're wondering how we get economy from that, it's very simple. Everything, and in, in almost everywhere before the Industrial Revolution, the economy was based on what? Family businesses, the family farm. The family cobbler, the family butcher, the family poulterer, on and on. It was all, the business was family. So this word for family, household, became the word for economy, the oikos. Christ is head over the oikos. So what is the head over? Not the building, the people. He's our king. When we meet in a few minutes for. The, the first, the second of our two annual general meetings We're going to do the king's business And we pray that we will do the king's business well Now what, is, what are we supposed to do As those who are God's household well, The answer is in the verbs You want to know what to do Look for the verbs Not the nouns Not the adjectives Look for the verbs. What is the action we're supposed to do? Now, there are six verbs that we're going to focus on in this sentence that uh, help us recognize what we're supposed to do. Three are in the subjective, subjunctive mood. Uh, Greek is a moody language, so is Latin. You've got moods that, with the verbs that we don't have in, in English, so it's kind of lost on us. This is the subjunctive mood. Um, It's actually, I think I got lost in Latin At some point Now, it works like an imperative But it's not an imperative If I spoke to you in the imperative In Greek, I would say Do this Very clear what you're supposed to do Subjunctive is a little bit Like that, but different The subjunctive says Let us do this It's not me telling You what to do, it's Me suggesting what all of us need to do together Let's do this So there are three subjunctives in in this Uh, Come on, let's do this Is is basically how it sounds Uh, There are three Let us draw near Let us hold fast And let us consider Then after that there's an infinitive And it's going to tell us what we're supposed to consider. And then after that, there are two participles that basically show us how to do that. But now you understand, it's a pretty simple sentence. Three exhortations. Let us, let us, let us. Let us do what? Then there's an infinitive. And how do we do it? Two participles. See, it's very simple. Don't you love grammar? Um, The first encouragement is that we would draw near. Let us go right into the presence of God with hearts that are fully sincere and trusting Him. Short order, the word embraces the idea of worship. When he says, let us draw near, he's saying, let us worship God. But not just on Sunday morning from 10.30 to 11.30. Let's be worshipers of God through the whole week. Setting aside Times regularly in our schedule to draw near to God, but you know, there's you can draw near to God. Are driving down the road? You stopped at a stop sign. Draw near to God. No cop's going to give you a ticket for distracted driving if you're drawing. No, don't text God on your phone. Uh, that'll cost you. But pray. Some of my best prayers have happened at stoplights. Draw near to God. You can sing at the stoplights, too. You won't get arrested for that either, I don't think. Uh, Worship God throughout the week. So that's the first one. Draw near to God in worship. Number two, hold fast. It's the word that we get the word catechism from. What is catechism? That's the church teaching people. Teaching what? About the hope that we have in Christ. That's what catechism means. Hold fast to what you've learned about your hope in Christ, is what he says here. Hold tightly to that hope We're going to need it If we're going to run the race well Hold on to our hope Don't waver The third encouragement Is to consider something To perceive something To figure something out And what is it that we're supposed to figure out That's the infinitive The infinitive is To stimulate To provoke To incite The word is is what you'd see on the farm where there's a dog tied up and and one of the kids takes a stick and starts poking at the dog. Beyond the reach of the dog because of the rope or the chain, provoking the dog till that dog's rightly angry. That's the word. It can be a positive or negative. We can provoke somebody to anger. We can stimulate them to action. I think he's trying to get us to Consider how we can stimulate each other to action Because he said, let us consider how to stimulate each other to love And to do good works How do we do that? I think it's very simple Practice positive feedback Every time you see somebody in the church doing a loving thing for somebody else Tell them how great you think that is Even if it's just a very little, tiny, simple thing of going to somebody they've never met and say, Hi, my name is Joe. Glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Encourage them. Bless them. Strengthen them. Positive feedback is a great thing. Now, this brings us to the last two verbs, which are participles. They're descriptive, and they point us toward what we want to provoke people to do as part of their love and good deeds. First, we want to provoke them not to leave behind the practice of meeting together. We want to stimulate them to not quit doing that. This is not just going to church on Sunday morning. This is getting together with each other during the week for coffee, uh, meeting for breakfast, meeting together to pray, meeting together to go for a walk and talk. If we're going to run this race, we need each other. So we must meet together. If we're going to run this race, we've got to spend time together. The second participle explains what we're going to do when we meet with each other. We're going to encourage each other. Let us not neglect our meeting together, but encourage one another. We need to help each other run the race with courage and with strength. We need to encourage. We're pretty good at being critical of people and things. It comes naturally. We have to work a lot harder to be encouraging. We have to put some thought into it and some intention. Let us encourage each other. Surely there are those around us who are in danger of quitting, running the race. We need to come alongside them, spend time with them, encourage them to run the race to keep their eyes on Jesus, following him, holding tightly to the hope that we have in him, no matter what the circumstances of life may be. Let us pray. Lord, we want to run the race well. We want to finish well. And we want to help each other finish well. We want to help those who are in danger of quitting. Lord Jesus, Fill us with your spirit that we might, in your power, be able to provoke, to love and good deeds, to encourage, and to exhort those who need help. For we ask it in Christ's name, your name. Amen.